feeling, Steve? I, I, I felt better. Why is that? Because we had a night out last night in, in that there London. Oh, was, it all very, was it very expensive? Actually, I didn't spend a penny. Actually, genuinely, yes. Train ticket, just, yeah. hotel room. But apart from Other that, than that, no, no money has left my wallet. indeed to all the sponsors who made that possible. <laughs> and to Hugh for paying for the taxi home, which I have very little recollection of. It, it, was, it was, Rory, picture this. He was, we were having a conversation outside uh, the hotel, Hello Gareth, and we, it went on for too long. I think Gareth would admit that it went on for too long. But the sign that perhaps we should bring this to a close was the fact that Steve, you know the old phrase, waded in with a point. Well, Steve waded in with a point corporally. He actually waded in between Gareth and I because he couldn't keep his balance. <laughs> Ah, that sort of evening. <laughs> oh, yes. did I? Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, Gareth. Yeah, you know, when you when you kind of gesticulate forward when you want to make a point, well, he threw his whole body into the conversation. Drunk Steve that point, is no, we, yeah, we is no respect for personal space, I would say. I was just feeling very passionate about the topic of conversation. He's good with the hands and the face. He's less good about the space. <laughs> were, you, were you at all aware of what the conversation was, Stephen, at the, that point or indeed now? No, because the only thing I was thinking about is... Why is Hugh still talking? Why are we not on our way back to the hotel? I really need some sleep and maybe some water. Would this count as drowning your sorrows? No, because you have to, surely you have to have certain levels of expectation if you are then required to drown sorrows. Yes, drowning is in disappointment. There, there is no disappointment because there is, great, there is great solace in just the taking part. Absolutely. That's what I've always thought about all things, that it's just the taking part that counts. And I'm going to re- reflect that in all of my analysis of the soccer from now on. <laughs> Do you know what? The, the thing you would have enjoyed the most, Rory, is that uh, Hugh didn't want his pudding. So there was a spare pudding up for grabs, which if you'd been there, I would imagine that you would have had a second pudding. But in your absence, I had to do the dutiful thing and make sure that that pudding got eaten. It sounds a little bit like, like your appetite shaming me. What was the pudding? Oh, it was, uh, it was like a chocolate... Log. Log. Some sort of log. It was, it was tasty. It I was tasty enough to log. eat two of them. Mm. What was the mains? Chicken. Just raw chicken? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it ran around the room and whoever caught it got to eat it. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, nominated for an FSA award this week and therefore his picture was in the programme on the relevant page. And Rory Smith, Nominated for two FSA awards this week, and yet his picture was on more than the two relevant pages. So two questions, uh, Rory. First of all, why were you on the Writer of the Year picture, and yet you were not shortlisted? In that Do they miss you so much when you're not nominated for that particular award that they have to put a picture of it, of you on that page? Or alternatively, and much more likely, do they, like many other people, confuse you and Jonathan Wilson? I, I think what's happened there is that I was meant to be nominated. And they made the mis- there is the, there's clearly been a mistake, but I, I can only assume the mistake was that they didn't nominate me for Writer of the Year. They, they did write to put my picture in the magazine, the programme, what we call it. Uh, the, the error was in not nominating me. Um, I wasn't really nominated for, for two awards. That you were. True. You were nominated with, in the podcast of the year, obviously. We were nominated. And you were nominated as part of the Monday Night Club, which was yeah, the radio show that, of the year. That's not really strictly true because the people think that the Monday Night Club is Mark Chapman 
Micah Richards and two other people who rotate. The fact that those two other people are mean for Sutton does not appear to have registered. Uh, Rory, I do also have another question, which is a follow-up to last week, which is a follow-up to many, many months of disparaging Burnley against Crystal Palace. Do you have anything to say? In your absence last week, we did mention uh, that uh, Steve was lucky enough to be at what is now very much the standard bearer for all entertaining football. Um, So do you think that you need to change your opinion of those two clubs? No, because... I was was I away when they played, or was I just not really paying attention to anything? Anyway, I, it it became clear to me whenever they played each other again that it was it was some sort of droll fest. Although I did watch match the day later, Stephen's commentary was excellent. It was. It did look like it was a very low quality football match. Um, it might have had lots of goals, but goals are not a metric for quality. That's not how football works. The so I was kind of conscious that it was an it was a goal fest. And all these people were in my Twitter mentions so, like, laughing good-naturedly about the fact there were loads of goals at Burnley Palace. And I, I liked the fact that that, to a certain kind of demographic, is now like the set-piece menu derby. <laughs> to the extent that I think next time they play it at Burnley, we, we should all have a day out. I like that, <laughs> that idea very much. That is a tremendous idea. By the way, we do hope uh, that we have your understanding with the con- continuing absence of Chinch. He is dealing with some family health issues. We do send our love to all concerned. So, in his absence... We plough on. And the food is? Uh, the food is this, um, this pan raisin from Euston Station, which I couldn't bring myself to eat. And I don't think I've ever passed <laughs> up the opportunity to eat a pastry of any kind. So that is a measure of how much last night has taken its toll on me. I like the fact that uh, you, you, you give it the big old French until the last word. Mm. pan o. Raisin. 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 <laughs> Apologies. He's, Steve, Steve, do you know what? To be fair, Steve is in no mood for this podcast. We've, we, will, we will notice him deteriorating as the minutes pass by. Steve, do you need to go to bed? <laughs> yeah, I, I did try and sleep on the train, but uh, I couldn't manage it. And, and the, the, the most that. frustrating thing is, is the minute that I finish dealing with you two, I've got to go and deal with a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. So uh, there, is, there, is no, there is to be no... Rest. I would imagine that a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old will be very respectful of your hangover. (laughs) They understand completely. Um, The football is, uh, we have been gaslighted by Paul Merson. Uh, Upon the appointment of Ralph Rangnick as Manchester United's interim manager until the end of the season, Merce, in an intervention best described as a sequel to his Gary Rowlett-inspired distaste for Marco Silva, asked of one of the coaches... Great enough to have spent a little time in the company of Rory Smith really is the very most important measure. Yeah, but what does he know about the English game? This is the English game that currently has some of its finest purveyors as disciples of Ralph Rangnick. So we're asking today, is English football as special as it slash Merce thinks it is? Uh, So that's come. You can get in touch with the podcast, of course, at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Our most recent Buffalo, Andrew Hopper Davis, has been in touch. Dear Boise, Denzel, Mike and Trigger, firstly, thank you for the title of Buffalo. The wife has been shown, the Christmas present merch has been agreed, and the title has been added to my email signature. He is now Andrew Hopper Davis, BSC, MA, and BUF of Football Coaching and Opinions. Uh, And he has genuinely put that on his signature at the bottom of the email. Just a quick one. This time, I promise it is. I have been dabbling into the old episodes and very gradually working through them. I must raise an alarm and warn you of your future conduct and the worldwide impact you can have. Episode 16, 
22nd of March 2017. While discussing how international management does not guarantee a follow-on club career, Rory and Steve, with a pinch of Hugh jokingly, explained how if we entered a ridiculous realm of Southgate taking England to the semi-finals or even finals of the Euros or World Cup, how this would impact his career. Most worryingly, Steve then jokes, illness striking down every other major footballing nation would be behind this. You know where England got in the last two tournaments? You know what illness struck the world? Please, be more careful. As Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. I'm sure you have learned from your mistake. I, I nursed like a, lot of, a lot of, what's the word? Precocious and annoying teenagers. A... Um, a fascination with Nostradamus, the great 15th century fraud. <laughs> and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but I do, I do wonder actually whether... There's obviously an element of The Simpsons about this where they predict loads of stuff because if you do enough episodes, you'll get some stuff right. That's clearly what's going on. But I do equally wonder whether if we put all of our podcasts into nonsensical quatrains, would we be able to pretend that we predicted the future? That, that would be an interesting exercise in self-indulgence. Well, I think if somebody else has already brought it to our attention, it may well have already happened. Will Frapple has this uh, Frapel Frapple has this uh, email, which follows on nicely from the most recent international break and slew of Premier League managerial appointments. He says this: Oslo, Richard, Emmett, and Daddy. I've been thinking about these two points for a long time now. I notice in the gossip columns, but not exclusively, when a player is mentioned, their name is often followed by England International. However, sometimes this does not ring true. For example, Jack Wilshire was referred to as an England International just the other day. My question is this. When does a player who hasn't or is unlikely to play for the England national side again stop being an England International? Is it when they retire? Is Ben Foster, David Nugent, Jay Rodriguez or even Carl Jenkinson still an England international? Maybe the terminology should be changed because England international sounds like they are still part of a squad slash plans. We'll come to a second point in a moment. What do you think about that terminology? I agree completely and I think the, the simple solution is to, suff- uh, sorry, is to prefix the words one time. Like um, trade David. Uh, <laughs> one time England international. Um, former England international is um is the way around that I agree I think this should be like a two-year statute of limitations on it so if you've not played for your country within the last two years you should no longer be considered kind of an international as part of your description is it one of those things where it probably came into being because it was a useful way of fleshing out copy yeah in a newspaper article and then it just basically came into sort of general usage or it might have been an old-fashioned thing where if you had an England cap in a, you know, when the world was smaller, if you had an England cap, you were kind of you were an England player. You had played for England, so you became an eternal England international, and you you relinquished that status only upon your death. Whereas in in the modern era, it feels slightly outdated. Just like you say, you can play for England a couple of times, not play for ten years, but then still be given this this status. Like David Nugent of England international, David Nugent is is ridiculous. With all due respect to David Nugent, so. Yeah, we maybe need to update it. In the same way as we've talked about this with world class, haven't we? That sometimes these things need to be updated slightly to to retain some sort of semblance of sense in the the modern context. So 
one-time or formerly world-class footballer. <laughs> you don't want to be responsible for putting the word former in, even though former might be absolutely true. Some, you know, For example, of David Nugent, you don't want to be that person who brings an end to their international career by designating them a former England international because there is a chance, albeit unlikely, there is a chance that they could be selected for their country again mm, if they true. are eligible. So we're talking about the copy issue. Genuinely, former might be accurate, but you don't want to be the one that's responsible for, for designating them that. The second point, uh, continues Will, that has been on my mind for quite some time. My barometer of a manager's level of competence is the job that they take next. For example, Frank Lampard's next job, Thailand international manager, or more realistically, Potch from Spurs to PSG, or Jose from Manchester United to Spurs. Is that a better way to gauge their level rather than the job they are currently in? If so, what does that mean for both Eddie Howe or maybe Sean Dyche in the future? That's uh, from Will Frappel Frappel. There's a degree of rationality to that, but it's difficult because you don't know what, at the time, you don't know what their next job's going to be. That is, that's, that's self-evident. The, <laughs> I, I think I had this conversation about Benitez the other day on the radio, in fact, where th- there was kind of, it, the fact that he'd taken Newcastle then Everton was used as a as an indication of his, of his, dwindling powers and I think that's right but then I'm not sure whether whether that is more to do with fashion and fashionability than it is to do with the, the kind of actual work the manager has done and we've touched on this before but like we do have an ability to get confused in football particularly with players but with managers too so if if someone does a bad job at one club that doesn't necessarily mean that they'd be a bad appointment for a club lower down the food chain but, th- but I suppose at the same time that is how it should work if you if you go to Everton say and do really well, you should get a promotion. And if you go to Everton and don't do really well, you, your next job should be a little bit further down to see if you can do well there. That's that that makes sense to me. Yeah, Will, Will might have struck upon sort of the, the idea of football managers being a bit like sort of market value, and it depends on you know the job you want or the job that somebody is willing to give you it defines your value, but that doesn't necessarily undermine what you have previously done or might do in the future. It also means sometimes that you have run out of clubs to manage that are better than the one that you have currently because you've managed them all before. And that that genuinely is is an issue faced by people like Benitez and and Carlo Ancelotti, for example. But that's an issue that will become increasingly relevant because there are so few of those kind of top-level elite clubs around that the elite is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So to the extent that like... Your top class managers, your managers who, who envision envision themselves to be the among the elite, wouldn't take the Valencia job. Whereas twenty years ago, Valencia would have been an absolute plum position. Mm. You know, Valencia would have been looking at Wenger or someone and thinking, "We can go and get Arsene Wenger if we if we want." Maybe not a great example. Um, you know, that Valencia would recruit top class managers managers from Italy. I'm not sure an absolute. I'm not sure Jurgen Klopp could be tempted away from Liverpool to Inter Milan, or even or AC Milan, and that's. That suggests that they're all going to have a bit of a problem because there is there are only a certain probably ten twelve elite jobs now that they're all going to be going for, and if they can't get one of them, they are going to have to step down, and that will be seen as evidence of their diminishing ability. But it probably isn't. It's, it's more to do with the the currents of the game itself. 
Uh, finally, from Chris Lomax in Bolton, who says this. Good day to you all. I'm not one for calling out misinformation, but in this era of the post-fact world where yarns are spun to suit individuals' needs, I feel as though it is sometimes important to provide context and show just how brittle memories can be. I've taken an extract of an article on The Athletic, you might want to keep an eye on this little-known upcoming media, about Gary Speed, rest in peace. In the article written by Alan Shearer, Duncan Ferguson recalls the famous 1996 Everton side. And, well, I'll leave the rest to Hugh. Kindest regards, and sorry I couldn't make it to the live show in Manchester, I will buy some of your wonderful merch instead. If only I could recall where to get some, please can you remind me, says Chris Lomax in Bolton. Genuinely, he says that. Tpublic.com. Just search for Set Piece Menu. Um, so Chris has uh, taken this part of the um, uh, a piece about Gary Speed. Uh, it was 10 years since his passing just this last weekend. Uh, but it's about, uh, as he mentions, the 1996 Everton squad. In 1996, writes Alan Shearer, I'm sure himself by his own hand, Speedo moved to Everton, his club. His debut happened to be my first league game for Newcastle too. The previous weekend, we'd been thumped, although it says humped. I think it means thumped. It's a misprint on The Athletic, which is slightly an unfortunate one. We'd been humped 4-0 by Manchester United in the Charity Shield, and I walked off the pitch at Goodison Park after a 2-0 defeat, thinking, what the f*** have I done? Gary scored. Everton had won the FA Cup in 1995 and finished 6th in the Premier League. The season before... Gary joined. He and Duncan Ferguson ended his first season as joint top scorers with 11 goals in all competitions, but it was a struggle for them that time around. 15th in the table, and it saw the departure of Joe Royal as manager. Howard Kendall replaced Joe, and his relationship with Speedo was less easy. Why did it become difficult? Probably because the other nine players were <laughs> Duncan says with a roar. We were the only two players in the f***ing team continues Duncan Ferguson. Uh, so that is from Chris Lomax, completely undermining the suggestion that the 1995 FA Cup final was the Hinchcliffe final, and it was absolutely steadfastly the rock upon which all success for Everton was based. I would presume that Duncan Ferguson's not entirely serious there. I would hope that he's not, because he yeah. would be very much aware of the fact that most of his goals came via the left foot of Mr Andrew George Hinchcliffe. Uh, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Well spotted. Correspondence of any kind to menu at gmail.com. It is not a sustainable policy to produce a podcast-based response to everything that Paul Merson says. But allow us to raise an audio eyebrow at least when Merce, using his own platform, happens to ask a question, while often rhetorical in nature, that serves as an SPM trigger. Ralph Rangnick is the godfather of gegenpressing, the man responsible for a coaching conveyor belt that includes Thomas Tuchel and Julian Nagelsmann, and has more disciples besides that too. But as he takes charge of Manchester United on an interim basis before working as a consultant there for the two years that follow, Paul Merson wanted to know whether that was a suitable appointment based on Rangnick not knowing anything about the English game. The inherent incredulity suggests not only a lack of awareness of the Germans' influence on some of those clubs representing the game in England, but also perhaps a lack of understanding of what the English game might currently be. So we are asking today, is English football as special as it, slash Paul, thinks it is? Well, look, there's, a really, there's a really serious kind of deep-seated Jonathan Wilson tactical point here, which is that English football as we perceive it is currently much more Ralph Rangnick based than it is English based. That Jurgen Klopp is cut from the same cloth as Rangnick. It's not quite right to call him a disciple but they, you know, Rangnick influenced Klopp. Rangnick is now manager of Manchester United. Rangnick influenced Tuchel. Rangnick influenced Guardiola in the sense that 
a lot of the ways in which Guardiola kind of adapted his style of fo- his vision of football, which comes from that sort of Cruyff La Masia line, while he was at Bayern, was to adopt principles that Rangnick had introduced into German football. There is no difference, as far as I can see, conceptually, in the way that the Premier League generally sees its games played and the Bundesliga sees its games played. You you have a similar emphasis on pressing, a similar emphasis on on dynamism, on what people now insist on calling verticality, that kind of directness. It's the same in England as it is in Germany. The two big differences are everyone in Germany is a lot younger as a rule, so they're much less experienced. And a lot of the players in Germany are of a slightly lower quality because of the economic power of the Premier League. So teams tend not to be able to defend very well in Germany. There's a slight... There's a slight more kind of a slightly a slight degree of like pressing purity in German, Germany to the extent that they will press when they probably shouldn't. You you will quite often Steve will see this more than I do, but you will quite often get games in Germany where you kind of think, looking at it with a neutral eye, that maybe one of the teams would benefit if they just sat back a bit and stopped yeah. trying to run around all the time. Yeah, Rory's definitely onto something there, and I think perhaps the reason for that is that whereas in the Premier League you have four, five, six teams against whom the rest generally don't stand much of a chance if they were to try and go toe-to-toe and therefore much more regularly those 14 other Premier League sides have to set up a little bit more cautiously to make sure they don't get humped as (laughs) Alan Shearer would say whereas in the Bundesliga there is only really one of those apex predator teams Bayern Munich and against everybody else, you can have a go. So they might, they, they, the, the outlook is to be more optimistic about your chances mm. if you are to, to take a more flamboyant approach to winning the game. Because you only, on a couple of occasions a season, come up against a team against whom that would be foolhardy. Yeah, and I think that's you see that, that there is, a, I would say that, the Bundesliga as a rule, apart from Bayern, and this is a really counterintuitive thing to say, and no one's questioning for a second that the Premier League is the most popular and probably the highest quality domestic league in the world at this point. But the Bundesliga is a much more balanced competition. That if you take Bayern out of it, and possibly one or two at the bottom, you know, it's not it's not unrealistic that Augsburg, who I think as we speak are sixteenth, would would not only beat Borussia Dortmund, I think Augsburg beat Bayern a couple of weeks ago, but they did, yeah. Augsburg might beat Borussia Dortmund, but might also deserve to beat Borussia Dortmund. They might be able to beat Borussia Dortmund or Leverkusen or whoever it might be by playing the way that Augsburg want to play rather than the, the case in England, which is where you, when you do get shock results against those big teams, it tends to be the kind of Burnley model or most recently the Manchester United model of naming eight defenders, hoofing it forward and hoping someone makes a mistake. That That is the, the way that you get shock results in England. You very rarely see a team like a sort of lower lower ranked team with a clear identity and Leeds are the best example of that beating one of the big teams on their own terms Leeds did it against City at the Etihad in the pandemic season the full pandemic season and I think there was a there was a degree of like a degree of strangeness to that that maybe yeah. wouldn't be replicated they won 3-2 um but as a rule those those teams that go and that have the conf- the self confidence, the self belief, to an extent, the naivety to go toe to toe with the bit with the big beasts, get beaten. Shock results in England come in the form of you know, cleverly orchestrated two one wins, 
Whereas in Germany, you, you, you will get fairly regularly a team that is chasing a Champions League place, losing comfortably to a team that's 14th. And the team that's 14th will look like the better team. It is a much more it is a much more competitive lead in that sense. You only have to look, to be fair, at the um, it's difficult because we're recording in a in a midweek Premier League week. But if you, th- if you look at the goal difference in the Premier League, I think Liverpool, Chelsea, and Man City are all plus 20 or above. Liverpool plus 28, Chelsea plus 26, City plus 20, or the other way around maybe. West Ham have plus eight, and everybody else has a either zero or negative goal difference. That is not a sign of a balanced league. I've not done, it, I've not looked at it in the in the Bundesliga, but my guess is it will be a lot closer. So, in a, in a way, the Bundesliga is what we think the Premier League is, in the sense that it is that it is the lead where, with one exception, anyone can beat anyone. And to be fair, Bayern have lost twice already this t- this season in games they would not expect to lose. The, it, is is the Premier League the reason? Is the reason why? Ralph Rangnick arrives in a Premier League which already bears the hallmarks of a Ralph Rangnick game philosophy. Is is that because the, the the Premier League is fertile ground for the kind of football that is played almost universally in 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 the Bundesliga, and is being brought in to England because what what the English game might have represented prior to that would have been lot of a lot of running around. A lot of dynamism, a lot of physicality, but in a not particularly structured way. Or if it was structured, it was structured in one way and one way only. So is, is it actually easy to see how those two things married up? Because there was, there was running around before it. And, and what, what the likes of Ralph Rangnick and his disciples have done has been able to, to structure that in such a way that actually the, some, some of those people who are already here are able to adapt to. It's culturally coherent, no question. There's a reason why that kind of pressing orthodoxy that you have you have two two schools of pressing one one german influenced to a large extent by lobanovsky at dinamo kiev and one argentinian the bielsa school and there's a reason why those styles have married and melded in england and not in italy and that's because there is no italian tradition of that form of, of kind of dy- dynamic football italian football is much more tactical it's much more stratified it's much more kind of organizational in its in its history, that's what what fans expect. That's what fans demand. It's what players are used to. It's what coaches teach. Is that kind of very very stylized, very tactically ordered football? The pressing style inverts that. It's still organized. It's still ordered, but it demands a greater level of dynamism, which marries the traditional virtues of of less order. Football, football was less organized in the seventies and the eighties, and long before that, it was much less structured everywhere. The reason that that has worked so well in England is because England had a lot of those virtues already, that emphasis on industry and hard work and chasing down and Harry and all that stuff. And so did Germany. Germany had a, had a very physical, it was it was quite tactically, what's the word, pedestrian. It was very much 3-5-2 kind of tough one-on-one battles, but it was, um, it was physical and it was intense. And that there's a reason pressing developed in Germany and not in Italy. Um, and there's a reason that it's in England that those ideas have been most successfully exported in a way that they couldn't be, certainly in Serie A, probably in La Liga, and slightly less obviously in, in France. I think in France you could easily play a, a quite hardcore pressing style with the players that you have at your disposal, mainly because they all tend to be quite young. Um, but for some reason, it, French football is quite defensive. I'm not quite sure why that is. I can't explain that. But yeah, it makes that, that pressing style is is a natural extension of what English football has has long been. And so 
that's the other way that this Merson... But I, to an extent, I think there is, a, there is a way in which Paul Merson's right, that, that there is a risk in taking a coach in Rangnick who hasn't actually done that much coaching in the last 10 years. He's, I think, probably had four seasons of the, of the last 10 where he's been an actual coach. Generally, what he's been doing for the last 10 years is building clubs, and I think that's where United will see his strengths, is in the two years of consultancy. Merson is right that there is a risk in taking someone who has, who has built clubs up from nothing, albeit with a lot of money, um, and putting him into Manchester United with this squad full of stars. That is a risk. There's a risk in taking a coach who, who, wants, who has a very clear idea of what they want to do and putting him in, in, into a squad that has been built by four different managers who seemingly had no idea what they wanted to do. That's going to be a problem. But in terms of the bit, the, the bit of his statement that I take issue is, with is this idea that it's somehow different because, because it's in England. There is no such thing as English football anymore. And, and that is, and it, Paul Merson isn't the only person to have said, what does he know about English football? But what I find so perplexing about that viewpoint is that we have, in the past, and we, you know, we're fortunate enough now to, to, to currently have an England team that not only has done quite well in recent times, in recent tournaments, but has the potential to continue doing so for a while. But when England weren't performing adequately on the world stage or as at the level that we expected they should be, a lot of attention was drawn to how few English qualified players were playing in the Premier League. And that was, that was given as an excuse as to why you know, we're not going to have a, a world-leading national team if our domestic game is, is heavily populated by players from overseas. So how can you have that situation, but then also claim that somebody coming in from outside doesn't know English football? Because as Rory said, what is English football? It's, but, it's not what we believe it to be. It, it, is, it is heavily influenced by tactics, coaches and players from all over the world. So there's no reason that a coach can't come in from Germany and succeed in the same way that there's no reason that a coach can't come in from Italy, Spain, South America, wherever. The Premier League is essentially an international league that is staged in England. Yeah. That's, there, and I suppose, again, to give Merson credit, which is something I'm, I'm not generally inclined to do, you can, make, you can probably make a case that Rangnick hasn't won hasn't got a sufficiently proven track record of success to suggest that he will automatically immediately be successful at Manchester United. There is a, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but there is, there is, a, case, there is a case to be made on that basis. Where, where it falls down is that this, this thing about our game and our league is totally outdated. It probably applied in the 1990s and hasn't applied since yeah. because the, the, ta- the tactics that we play in England or that we see played in England have all just stated abroad, yeah. all of them. There is no such thing as a homegrown English style, tactically. The, te- the technical level that we have in England, and the, the, that's the root of the success, not only of the national team, but of the, the club sides in, in the Champions League, is that Premier League teams have always had that industry, that intensity, that dynamism. They are successful in the Champions League when that is married up to a level of tactical acumen and technical ability. We saw that in the kind of Benitez-Mourinho era, 2004 to 2010, when tactically English football was was at the cutting edge alongside teams in Europe. Um, Barcelona then come along and changed that. Um, and we see it now where th- probably three of the best managers in the world are at City, Chelsea and, and Liverpool. 
England is the is the melting pot for all of the yeah. all of the the cutting edge tactics that you that that exist in football, and it's played by players with a technical level that you need to play it. But that technical level has been brought about by the presence of foreign coaches, and even in the academies where there aren't foreign coaches, a lot of the the drills they're doing, a lot of the methodologies they're following, were pioneered by foreigners. There is no such thing as as an English youth development system it's a it's a the whole thing has been has has been borrowed from lots of other countries and that there's nothing wrong with that i'm not criticizing that's just the, the nature of it so at what point is is english football unique and the, the final barrier i guess is the intensity the famous intensity of the crowds but i would suggest that that those don't bear any resemblance to the intensity of crowds in the bundesliga and the noise that you get in the Bundesliga certainly don't seem to bear any intensity to the intent bear any resemblance to the intensity of the crowds you get in France, where they keep getting games called off, um, or in Italy, where you're dealing with kind of the pressure of the ultras. And I think that's something that that we overlook completely is that yeah. you, you have a lot of these a lot of players either play in a league or come from a country where the pressure of the crowd is not that they might boo you off at half time, it's that they might confront you at the training ground. That's a different level of stress. I don't think there's any basis by which you can say English football is any is realistically any different in any kind of material way to Germany or Italy or Spain or France in terms of that intensity of that pressure and my guess is that as with so much that the argument that our game and our lead are different is based not so much on knowledge of what is what England is but on ignorance of what the other leads are and we spoke about that in the, in the series we did on Premier League exceptionalism. It is this strange sort of dichotomy. Sean Dichotomy, yeah. <laughs> Sean Dichotomy, where you've got, you've got the, the, this, this exceptionalism and, and everything you, you mentioned there, which is kind of a, a, a self-aggrandizing, based partly in truth, thing that the Premier League does about itself. And yet everything that's good about the Premier League, you could say, comes from outside of it, into it. And yes, we, we mentioned that there is there is yes the fertile fertile ground for that to happen because because there is no great uh, kind of anchoring identity that prevents anybody coming in and changing it. So there there is benefit in that and that, that it is a melting pot. But it, it's it's this strange suggestion from Paul Merson and others that 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 it is weirdly ring ring fenced that the English game serves as this identifiable ring fenced philosophy that. Unless you have come from within it, you cannot yeah. possibly contribute or succeed within it. But that's but this, th- 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 at the risk of shooting this podcast in the foot. That's not even an argument worth indulging because it, it holds no water. Look at look at the coaches that we celebrate. Look at the players that we celebrate. That they've not come in and been like, well, I've got to play English football now, have they? they? They've succeeded because they've brought in ideas from abroad that work. That's why they've been hired, and it's why they've been successful. But but there's obviously there's obviously a school of thought to enough of an extent that it's easy for these these slightly lazy and 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 slightly ignorant assumptions to be made because it trips off the tongue for not just Paul Merson, it trips off the tongue for so many so easily. But there's there are so many other things that you could say to cast doubts about whether or not somebody would be successful. Be, perfectly legitimate to say, well, actually, I've had a look at Ralph Ranick's record in terms of winning trophies. And, do you know, what? it's not all that impressive. So is he the person that Manchester United need right now? Or do you know what? It could be a step up in level. And let's wait and see whether he is capable of operating 
uh, with those elite players in the elite division. But why say, well, they, what do they know about English football? Or the other, the other one that I've heard in reference to this is that they've not coached in England before. Well, lots of people haven't coached in England before getting their first job because you have to have a first job at some point or another. A coach has got to start somewhere, whether it's at the beginning of their career with their first job or whether they are moving to a new league. It's a ridiculous accusation to say that somebody isn't going to be successful because they have not worked in that environment previously. Particularly because most of the players I'll be working with aren't English. Yeah. And they will be players who've worked at, with, or at United is a slightly different, different kettle of fish, but the vast majority of that squad will either have been coached by, at youth level in some way, by people who aren't English or who, who haven't worked in England, or they will have been coached by people in England who also got their first jobs elsewhere because there's so much foreign influence. I think largely it's just a way of, of it says more about the speaker than it does the audience. Mm. It It's... It's a way but of also the definition of his own terms. He doesn't know what English football is if he's no. saying that, that that is the case about referendum. But, but it's a way is it a way of claiming some ownership over this thing that has changed so unrecognizably because yeah, the, the Premier League is an international league that happens to be held in England. It is not it is not evidence of the virtue of English football that the Premier League is strong. It is evidence, if anything, of the, the ability of English football to co opt ideas and exactly. staff members yeah, from exactly. elsewhere. And that for that the, the Premier League deserves credit. That's that's what's that's what its success has been built on. And we've always, it, we've always celebrated, Rory, ever since the Premier League's inception, its ability to bring in the leading talent in terms of players from all over the world. So I, I don't understand why that doesn't apply to coaches. Well, I think it does. The difficulty that Rannick gives people is that his, his achievements are a little bit harder to parse than someone like Conte's. Mm. So when Conte comes in, you can say... He's won five league titles. He's done, you know, got Italy to the quarterfinals of the Euros. He is, he's a winner. He's a winner. He's won things. And winning things is all that matters. And I think Conte is one of the best coaches in the world, don't get me wrong. But the fact that Italian football tactically is not really at the cutting edge and that Conte's system that he seems to prefer kind of arose before the, the, the hegemony of pressing which means that his his preferred system has not been developed as a response to the, the dominant system he will encounter in England. Th- those are drawbacks. The fact that he won league titles with Juventus in 2015, not really relevant to coaching in the Premier League in 2021. But at least you can say he's won these trophies. Mm-hmm. With Rangnick, a lot of his victories have been have been conceptual. That sounds That's such a pretentious sentence, and I'm really yeah. sorry. But... It's the people he's influenced. It's the ideas he's instituted. It's the, the thought process he's started. It's the, it's the channels he's opened up for people to go into coaching who don't have a playing background. They're Randnick's huge contributions to football. But that's much harder to get your head around than someone who's won five league titles. And it's, inter- it's actually really interesting to me that as someone who's been a, a long-standing advocate of Randnickism, that Man United have made that appointment. I think it's a really... On one level, I think Barney Rone's written, it's a really incoherent appointment as you've gone from indulging this club legend who was clearly out of his depth and this galaxy of stars who've been signed because the marketing arm of the club likes them to literally the most systematised coach in the world. Randnick is, is the king of system. And that in itself is is incoherent. But at the same time, it's it's fascinating that English football's thought processes have changed so much 
that the biggest club in the country can appoint a guy who's not won who's won one German Cup in ten years or whatever because of the way that he can structure the workflow yeah. of a club. And that, that is a huge change in the way English football thinks. I, I, I compare it to, um, and it's, it's not my comparison, it's one that I've stolen from elsewhere, but if, if you, are, you are behaving like a cliché jilted lover, if you're Manchester United in this situation, you, you have had a previous lover who represents A, and when that doesn't work out, you lurch to go to Z. And then you might lurch back to A again if Z doesn't work out. This this is the way that Manchester United are behaving. I think you've written something to this extent as well, Rory, that they are essentially trying to build in all their managerial appointments the identikit that Sir Alex Ferguson provided them with, but they have failed to do so because each time they've taken a part of his personality or a part of his style, they've gone so much far down that particular road that actually they've realised that that they needed all of it and, and not just the one thing. And so they have lurched and lurched and lurched. And as you say, they have gone from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, a man wedded to the club and its ideas, but not necessarily any footballing philosophy, to the ultimate footballing philosophy guy. That is that is genuinely... And this is serving to answer some of the questions, I think, that, that Steve posed a moment ago to say that they're slightly better articulations of whether it's the right appointment or not. And, and, we'll, and we'll finish on trying to answer some of those questions that Stephen posed. And maybe you can answer them yourselves, Stephen. I don't think Steve's in any position to answer anything <laughs> at this point. He, he posed the questions, and yet, like Paul Merson, they remain rhetorical. Because of your wonderful editing... The listeners, the, our family what? of listeners, will not realise that it's taken four and a half hours to record this podcast because Steve keeps stopping and having to start again. Just, just the one thought is four and a half hours long. Everything you that you have described, both of you, prior to Manchester United appointing Ralph Brandnick or that that news breaking, would have seemed like exactly the things that Manchester United needed. They required the qualities of somebody that could organise, could carry out a root and branch review of things within the club to get the best out of the resources that they, the vast resources they have available. So prior to Ralph Rangnick's appointment, he is exactly the kind of person that you would say, well, that's what Manchester United need. Yet the minute he gets the job, it becomes an issue and aspersions are cast about his qualities. There is an argument to say that it is somewhat painting by numbers on account of the fact that genuinely you think what was missing or what did either we decide ourselves was missing or what was it accused of our club that was missing. So we're just going to get that round peg and stick it in the round hole and assume that by doing that one thing that all other things will follow in a way that they hope. I think this, it's hard. It, it's a really smart. It's a really smart move, and it's actually quite a humble move from Manchester United, which isn't a word you'd necessarily associate with them at all. But it's it's an admission that they need someone who has the expertise to build the institution of the club again. Does Manchester United have never been a modern club? Not in the sense that we understand it now. They don't. They don't do any of the things that we associate with being best practice for the biggest clubs in the world. And they are now starting to. They appointed a head of data science a few weeks ago. Rannick's come in. And as I say, I think the test for Rannick won't be how he coaches the team over the next six months. It will be what what does he do in the two years as a consultant? How much does he listen to? Um, that's, what, that's what will be really significant. And from that point of view, I think they've made a really, really smart decision. Steve's right that it is, there's an element of 
nothing's ever good enough that you say yeah. you know United need this this and this and then they go out and get the guy who provides this this and this and you're like well I don't know if it'll work and that is a bit that is a very kind of pointless media thing to do I think it's fair enough to ask is this too abrupt a change in approach like it's it is fair enough to highlight that United have gone from one extreme to the other they've gone out They've they've had three years and more of insisting that they they alone are immune to the needs for like modern best best practice, and now they've immediately in the course of four days been like, well, actually, we're going to go and get the guy who is who represents all of these things. That is a that's quite a change of gear. But at the same time, the fact that it is an abrupt switch doesn't mean it's a bad idea or that it won't work because it it should do. I'm conscious that it sounds as though. I'm a huge advocate for Ralph Rangnick and his appointment. But the, the truth is, we don't know. Nobody knows. Anyone is within their rights to offer an opinion as to what the rights and wrongs of appointments, managerial appointments, player signings might be. So by all means, say, look, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know about this guy's credentials. I don't know whether it's going to work out. But don't make a snap judgment on the basis of he isn't English or he's not worked in England before. It's and, absurd. And the, the, fin- the final point, and, and the one thing that we don't know particularly about, and, and Stevie just mentioned it there, is, is that in terms of recruitment and the new permanent manager at the end of the year, how do those two things marry up with the appointment of Ralph Ranić as the consultant who will be at least playing a part in this because they have to I imagine sit with him in terms of being happy that he's there and working as a consultant so that might narrow the field but also the way that he recruits doesn't necessarily chime with what you mentioned earlier Rory about the fact that there is an element to Manchester United's recruitment that thinks about the marketing potential of that player if he's going to go and scout all these young players who fit his style of football it might not necessarily be something that the whole club is behind well, there is a point at which Man United have to accept, and this is difficult for people, this is always difficult to understand, including for me, that you have to accept that there are apex predators. And it's really easy, and I've done it a million times, to be like, well, why aren't more English clubs being like Leon or Porto or Udinese? And there's a reason for that, is because if you're Manchester United, you can't be Udinese. Does you get charged more? And also the players need to win right now. So I'm sure that Rand- I mean, Randy's not stupid. He's not going to be like, well, we, we don't know and sign a load of 18-year-olds from Mali and Guinea and Hungary, and that will be Man United's new team. I'm I'm assuming that his methods will be adaptable to the to the realities of his of his current situation, which is he will have to go and recruit players who fit with hit with a vision of football that is suitable for Manchester United. And this is where the the club building comes in. That Randnick is the person within football who has shown the greatest ability to do things like appoint a scouting team and institute a scouting structure that allows for the recruitment of a certain type of player. Those players are are signed according to a specific vision of football. The manager is recruited because they will play that specific vision of football with this specific type of players. That's what Rangnick will, that's what the consultancy will be. So, I, But also I the coach that... as well. The, the, the coach to institute all of that is, is absolutely vital. And he's no, been he, he, he particularly intransigent and... before on, on which coaches are hired by the clubs for whom he's consulting. Yeah, he, he wants he people who think like him. He will wait for that so, right person. So, it, and I'm sure that in a different situation, like 
running it would be like, well, the, pers- the perfect person for this is Ralph Hasenhuttl. Does Hasenhuttl has a has a clear vision of football that is that aligns with Rangnick's? That won't work at Man United. So he will go and look at people like Eric Ten Hag and Maurizio Pochettino and whoever else and say, right, which of these elite coaches plays the sort of football that aligns with the type of players that we're going to sign? And that isn't that hard. And it says a lot about football that Rangnick is in a very, very small cast of people who seem to be capable of doing it. Michael Edwards would be in there, a couple of others, but there's not many. Bidiristein at Barcelona, I guess. Um, that's what United want. They want Rangnick to be their sporting director. If In effect, he will be a cons- an outside consultant just the way that his business is now structured, but in effect, he will be overseeing the technical director aspects of Manchester United. Mm. And that will mean that he will go and appoint a coach who plays the type of football that he thinks. It may well be that he looks at the squad that United have and thinks, okay, if we sell these players and buy these players, then the type of football that we need to play is this type of football. So I'm going to go and get a coach who plays this type of football. And that might not be Eric Ten Hag. That might be Simone Inzaghi. It might be whoever else. It might be Brendan Rodgers. But he will. It probably won't be Brendan Rodgers. He will go and get someone who fits a holistic vision of what he thinks Man United should be, and that is what he's been hired to do. This, this is all eggs in Ralph's basket. Um, so, final point: um, What's he like, Rory, as a person? He's really nice. Ralph's really nice. He's he really nice? smart. He's um, interesting. He's open. He's he's quite cerebral. He's quite academic, um, but he's very engaging. He's very charming. He's quite funny. Um, He's he's a he's a Ralph Rannick is a nice man. And that that is a, that that should be the headline of the pod, but it's not. It's about Paul Merson instead. No, the the headline <laughs> of the podcast is someone Rory Smith has has been banning on about for ten years has finally got you know the biggest job in England. So Rory Smith feels vindicated. That's the headline of the podcast. Before we go, before we all go, and we we put Stephen out of his misery, we need to remind you that our fifth anniversary show is at the Courtyard Theatre on Thursday, the sixteenth of December. It starts at seven o'clock. Tickets are twenty two pounds fifty, and you can get them via myticket.co.uk. Just search for SPM. There is a link on the blurb for this, and indeed on our social media. Um, if you would like to come and join us, I promise you a number of things. First of all, Stephen will not drink before the show, so he will be full of beans and enthusiasm. Rory will be wearing at least three items from Curve Nord, as he the is... The North Curve. The North Curve, which he is currently uh, wearing now. And also, we hope that Chinch will be uh, well and with us uh, as well. So do come and join us at the Courtyard Theatre in London, in Shoreditch, at th- on Thursday the 16th of December. Just bearing in mind the last time that Stephen went to London on a weeknight, we should all be absolutely terrified. Uh, the start is 7 o'clock, and you can get the tickets from myticket.co.uk. Just search for Set Piece Menu. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also, buy the merch. Don't forget the merch. We've mentioned it once. We'll mention it twice at tpublic.com and search for Set Piece Menu. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and to Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Certain things are going to happen now. Rory has to go and collect his son. Really quickly, otherwise I'm in real trouble. Thank you very much, Rory. Bye. You are, you are allowed to go. And Steve, I hope you feel better. Stephen will now put his head into a bucket of iced water. Rory looks like he's going to go and collect Ed from the wilderness. It's somewhere. really cold in Yorkshire. That's what you need, Stephen. You need a bracing Yorkshire walk. That'll that will. Oh, that's you. what you. That's what you write out, Steve. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not quite sure. I've got the wherewithal it. to get along the M62 we, right now. We, but maybe next week we'd, we'd have to leave him. We'd have to leave him and, and <laughs> strike out of home alone. Kind of like roaming around. And the funny we'd have thing to leave is him to die. The, the, 
the, the funny thing to think about berries. It's taken him four and a half hours just to mention like two or three points in this podcast. Imagine how long it would take him to get to Yorkshire and back. He'd be complete.